You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Happy reign of Christ. If you are not familiar with all of the billion parties that the church throws throughout the year, um, this is one of them at the very end of ordinary time. We've had a good run. Um, And believe it or not, this is like New Year's Eve for the church. The beginning of the year is December 1st, which launches Advent. Advent is this very purple season um, before Christmas that leads us in a season of preparation as we get ready for the birth of the Lord. And I am, like Ryan was saying last week, I'm so ready for Advent actually to begin. But before we do, we have the reign of Christ. Throughout church history, um, throughout history in general, the church has had a really clumsy relationship with power with governments, with authority, with proclamations, with wars, with violence, so much so that many of our non-believing friends and even maybe some of you would say, man, religion has caused so many, so many problems, so many wars. Whether that's true or not, and it's actually not so simple, um, in many ways governments have like hijacked religious causes and kind of slapped a name on it and said, this is a religious thing, let's go do this. In the name of religion, so many awful things have been done. And so the church has had such a clumsy relationship throughout history. So much so, when we look back at history, that it is so common for people to come up to me. It may be common for people to come up to you, especially when there are things going on in the world that are very political. For for you to hear something like, keep politics out of the church. Keep politics out of the pulpit. Sean, don't preach politics from the pulpit. That's not your place. Have you ever heard that? I hear that. I don't hear it all the time, but I have heard that for sure. When I was filling out our nonprofit status uh, application for the church, um, one of the things that it had me sign off on was that our organization wouldn't lobby um, for certain political action or candidates. And, you know, maybe I'm overthinking this as like in terms of theology and scripture, but I wondered as I was filling that out, can I really say this? That we're not going to lobby for any kind of political action. I think I know what they mean. I think they mean kind of partisan political action. So be it. But it just leaves me wondering, with those kinds of examples in my mind, it leaves me wondering, what does it mean to be a member of the kingdom of God? Really? And not just in a way that we file in the kind of religious section of our life that has nothing to do with reality or the way we actually live. But what if that's really true? And what if that says something about the way we make our way in the world, the way we make sense of things, to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, to have a king, a sovereign over us, to live within the political realm and the space of power and governance of Christ the king? That's what we're actually talking about today. What does that mean? What does that have to do with real life? Well, from our reading in Colossians, um, this makes it a little complicated, and I just want to show this to you because it's going to be kind of interesting. This is what it says in uh, Colossians 1.13. He, meaning God, has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That's how it finishes. So when the church celebrates a day like this, the reign of Christ. Or when you, at the beginning of the service, stand and say, and blessed be his kingdom, 
now and forever do. Can we mean that? As American citizens, how does that work? What does that actually mean for us to say, and blessed be his kingdom? Not just when we die, but when? Now. Can we mean that? What does that mean? Well, to begin, um, and it's such a beautiful story, we're going to begin by going back to God's people in Israel. It's really where we have to begin with this. Um, And this, when I say Israel, I'm not meaning the modern nation state that is named Israel, but the people in Scripture that God chose to be his people, ancient Israel, his beloved. We see that God is actually, through them, concerned about the abusive and negligent leaders that come into Israel and abuse his people and scatter them. God actually cares about real leaders in real political space, in real time, doing real damage and abuse with their power to people. God cares about that. That sounds pretty political, doesn't it? That God would care about that? This is how much God cares. He warns us through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 22, and I have, I have you can follow along with me. It is you who have scattered my flock. He's warning these, these leaders. And have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. So I will attend to you for your evil doings, says the Lord. To set things right, listen to what God will do next in verse 3, 23. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of the lands where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold. And they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will gather up shepherds over them who will shepherd them. And they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. Notice that God, frustrated with these leaders, doesn't do away with leadership. Or justice. Or people. Or the earth. He doesn't say, ah, to heck with it. Let's just start over. Reset. He doesn't do that. He doesn't consider leadership in the real world a failed project that needs to be abandoned. But that the Lord will gather up his people to himself and give them true shepherds, true leaders like himself. Leaders who don't need to coerce people to get what they want out of them. Leaders who don't have to deal with language and an imagination of fear to compel people into action, like is so prevalent in our modern political landscape. People don't need to fear everything that could possibly happen to love and obey God under these leaders. Leaders who don't send people into dismay and leaders under whose, whose guidance none will be lost, but all will be gathered up. When this kingdom of God is established and these shepherd leaders tend to the flock, they will go after those scared lambs that have been um, sent off into the bushes, right? The one lost, you know that image, that story, that parable? These shepherds will go and retrieve even those one lost sheep. And this is what everyone, when Jeremiah was announcing this and even for hundreds of years afterward, this is what everyone was expecting the kingdom of God to look like, right? So in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus comes kind of out of nowhere, at least in the public view, this this rabbi from where? Nazareth? Where is that even? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? 
this backwater town. He arrives in Galilee, and his first words, do you know the first words of Jesus' public ministry? He says this, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So when he says kingdom of God, one of the images that comes to mind in the Jewish imagination is that great shepherding image. That day in which God will send that leader to gather up his flock. And so you can see why his Jewish disciples were looking for an overthrow of Roman oppression. Get these Romans off of our back and out of our territory. You can see why they would say that. You could also see why they wanted to, to start a just rebellion, taking up swords, taking up action to make things right. Because there was a great gathering up of Israel at hand. That's what people thought when they heard kingdom. You could also see why the disciples asked Jesus, so who gets to be number two? Who gets to sit at your right hand? Who's your go-to guy, Jesus, when you are establishing your kingdom? And by the way, when is that, Jesus? Because that should come. You're the one, right, that we should be expecting? You know all those stories that the disciples interrogate Jesus with? This is because they're expecting this overthrow. They really want something to happen in real life, in the real place where they live. They long for that day when the oppressors would finally be thrown off, when the Lord would deliver them just as he did in the Exodus. When the Lord delivered them out of Egyptian slavery and into freedom. And how he would gather them up like he did after the Babylonians came in and conquered them and scattered them as well. They hoped that God would restore his people once again. And not just in their hearts. Do you see that? It's not just, well, in my faith and in my heart, but this was a real deliverance in real world, in real life. If you're listening to all this and you're thinking, what in the heck does ancient Israel have to do with me today? Right? Like, that's an interesting history lesson, Sean, but we are not Jewish and we're Americans in 2019 and we have a ton of political problems. So what does this have to speak to us today? This, these non-Jews in the first century, they felt the same way, actually. They didn't expect um, something concerning them was coming because all of this was geared to Israel. So those Gentiles, those non-Jews, seeing all of this, um, they weren't expecting Jesus to bring anything for them either. But it was actually concerning them in the end. And I want to just say, hold on, because you'll see what this has to do with you. When Jesus began his earthly ministry announcing the kingdom of God, calling everyone to repentance and belief, he had in view something that no one else would have anticipated. His kingdom and his reign would look unlike any other kind of kingdom and reign that human people in society and in history had ever seen. So when that day finally came, where he was tried and condemned as a, a political rebel and was crucified publicly, you could see how this was a bit confusing for his followers. Wait a second, this is not how this is supposed to go. You're supposed to win. You're not supposed to be killed. And condemned. How confusing. Victorious kings, they didn't get tortured and murdered publicly on a pole. That's not victory. That's not success, right? They weren't mocked and given the most gruesome death that eventually was actually just suffocation under your own body weight 
victorious kings and leaders, they did not suffer this kind of thing, right? This is not what we all expected. And certainly they weren't killed on top of a rock who was named after Skull. All of these images of the most gruesome, the darkest kinds of death. This was what he had in mind? What happened? Something must have gone totally wrong, this poor guy. This was the ultimate humiliation and defeat. And yet, hanging on that cross, Jesus continued to do the most peculiar, kingly kinds of things. Did you notice this from the reading? He pronounced forgiveness to his subjects who put him there. Even while they played a game below them to see who would get the scraps of his clothing after he died, he pronounced forgiveness, not just to Jews, but to all of them. Though, he hung, uh, though they hung a sign above him, mocking him as uh, the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, he welcomed repentant thieves into paradise. Taking on the sin of the world, this quiet and very non-threatened king transformed a Roman torture device that he was hanging on into his throne of glory. And nobody saw that coming. When the nations threw a fit about him, he utters his voice and they all melt. They're all subdued under his power on the earth. Those who were maybe there to witness this, who had come publicly to see this event, who came maybe to mock him, to spit on him or deny him, and carry on in their ways of death tomorrow because this was just a sight to see. Even those people who had no idea what they were coming to witness, they became the witnesses before his throne room. Witnesses of godly and unshakable and unthreatened power. And eventually recipients of his love and the forgiveness of sins. Even for them, those unwittingly, un unwittingly people, those, those observers, had come to now see the true king who was dealing out forgiveness even for them. This is what he'd been saying all along, friends. Can you see this? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. He was pointing to the cross. This is what his kingdom looks like. When God exercises his power in the world, this is the shape that it takes. Friends, the mystery of the cross is this. When we had raised up death in our lives and even raised him up as death in our lives, God raised up a shelter made of wooden beams that we could come underneath and be gathered just like Jeremiah had prophesied. What we had intended and designed for death and sin and selfishness and evil, God had converted into his throne. What do we do with this thing that God has made before us? Taking all of our sin and transforming it into his glory. What do we do with this? There must be something I've got to do, right, Sean? I've got to, like, now I've got to go to cate catechism class to really let this sink in. I've got to show up every Sunday. I've really got to get after this so that I can really receive this gift that God is giving me. Psalm 46 reminds us what is, how we're involved in this, actually. It's quite simple. Verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. 
I am exalted among the nations. There's new meaning in that now, isn't he, when he's up upon the cross. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Friends, when God reveals his reign and when he had revealed his reign in Jesus, it doesn't look like bullying. It doesn't look like pressure. It doesn't look like a huge guilt trip to feel bad so that we'll exchange our sins for his forgiveness. It doesn't look like any of that, but it looks like a self-sacrificing cross, a gift of love. That's what the reign of God looks like. Any other view of God's power in his reign, however you picture him kind of up there dictating things down here, if it doesn't look like the cross, then it's wrong. It's just false and it doesn't exist. Be still. Adore the God who gives up himself out of love for you. There's not much more you can do here. But be still. Witness this. Repent and believe. Even now, God is gathering up his flock. Wherever you are, he's, gather, he's gathering you up. And this gathering isn't just some sort of spiritual gathering. Look, you're here. You're physically here. He's constituting a people who have come to witness his cross that then go into the world demonstrating the power of God in a cruciform way. We come to feed on his table and are filled by his broken body and poured out blood that we would become that Eucharist broken out and poured out for the life of the world. This isn't just for us. In being witnesses, we've been transformed into participants, members of his body. Those who come out heralding the, the establishment of God's kingdom. There is a new world at hand and it's breaking in. And Christ, the firstborn of the new creation, the resurrected one, is leading that charge. Repent and believe. This is our king. What a king he is. This is, friends, why if, if you're new to the res and you're, this is super weird, all the ways that people use their body in here, I get it, it is super weird. Um, I'm, I, totally. But the reason we bow our, our bodies at the cross when it comes by is because we're acknowledging this is our king. Think of all of the important offices that you would go into if you like, met somebody super famous or important. You would like, what do I do with my body? What do I do with my hands? Maybe I should bow or do something really respectful, right? When you're in the presence of... It's the same thing with Jesus, but even all the more when his cross comes through, we bow at this symbol of his love for us, this symbol of his power in the world. And as we bend our bodies to the cross... We also rearrange our actual lives around this cross because that is now what is at center of our life. So what other, whatever other kings rule over you this morning, they are no match for this king who doesn't demand more of you but actually calls you to be still and then gives himself to you. There's no other king in the world that would do that. And Christ does that for you. So whatever other kings you have, Whatever voices or powers or pressures, let them go. Turn away from those. Repent is what that means. And believe in this one Christ the King that we have who's come for us this morning. And come quickly. Don't put this off. Receive this King into your life and the many benefits of being in his kingdom, including the forgiveness of sins and including a new life that is accessible to you today. 
here we are, friends. Not just at church. We are gathered in the throne room of our king. Coming to offer our own lives as living sacrifices. He is gathering us now. Oh Lord, gather us into your kingdom, we pray. Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.